Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. For most people, architecture is probably not a blip on the radar in their conversation about artificial intelligence, and yet there are architects who historically have provided the foundation for what we now consider AI. And we talk about those architects today with Molly Wright Steenson, the author of the new book, Architectural Intelligence, How Designers and Architects Created the Digital Landscape. This is New Books and Technology. I am your host, Jasmine McNeely. So one of the first things we like to do on New Books and Technology is for the author, or to have the author, uh, tell us a little bit about themselves. So who is Molly Wright Steenson? I am, uh, I'm a number of things. Um, <laughs> By day, I am an associate professor at Carnegie Mellon in the School of Design, and I have a courtesy appointment also in the School of Architecture. And here I work across all levels of our curriculum. I teach undergraduates, I teach master's students, and I teach and advise doctoral students. And our students are working on uh, design its impact in the world and design in technology in different kinds of ways. So um, that's what I do by day. I'm a historian and an architectural historian, I should mention, um, by training mm-hmm. uh, and did a PhD in architecture. And um, I'm a nerd. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, my early career was in the early internet starting in 1994-95. And I've had a lot of questions about the early World Wide Web and things that we do today digitally and where they came from. And I discovered that there's a connection between them and between architecture and between um, different different movements in technology, different computational paradigms. So including things like artificial intelligence mm-hmm. or um, information architecture, things like that. So the book is Architectural Intelligence, How Designers and Architects Create the Digital Landscape. So why write the book? The book came out of research that I did as a doctoral student and then extended outward. And I got really curious. Um, Back in 1996, I worked at a company called Netscape. Mm. And if you used the web in the 90s, you know what Netscape was. (laughs) And it was my first day there. And Hugh Dubberly who was at that time the creative director of the Netscape website, suggested that we use patterns and pattern languages, which was an architectural concept um, developed from an architect named Christopher Alexander. Maybe we should use patterns and pattern languages in our redesign of the Netscape website. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Here I am at a tech company talking to a designer who's bringing up architecture. And I had done a lot of research as um, in architectural history when I was an undergrad in German at the University of Wisconsin. And I had always been curious about architecture, so I wondered why that was the case. And many years later, I began um, looking through the footnotes of Christopher Alexander's book, Notes on the Synthesis of Form, 
which was published in 1964. It's his dissertation in published form. And noticed how, that there were a number of footnotes not only dealing with cybernetics, but one of them dealing with artificial intelligence. And I don't know, about 10, 12 years ago, there were a lot of people in architecture talking about cybernetics and the influence of cybernetics. That's the science of feedback in systems and its impact on architecture in the 60s and 70s. But no one was talking about AI. And I thought, well, that's that's interesting. What's up with that? And so those sets of questions are what sent me down the path to investigate this idea about intelligence in the world around us. And I looked at it through Christopher Alexander's work and the work of Nicholas Negroponte and the Architecture Machine Group at MIT. And so if you know the MIT Media Lab, that's the that's what it became in the 1980s. But in the 60s and 70s, it was the Architecture Machine Group. And an architect named Cedric Price, who a lot of people haven't heard of outside of architecture, but had very unique ideas about interactivity and feedback and intelligence um, and architecture that wouldn't ever be just one thing that could be many things and could, could kind of perform and be more like a stage set that could move and change over time as opposed to something that was locked in place like a big monumental building. And um, there was another set of things I got interested in investigating in the book and that was my own fields. So in the 1990s, moving into the early 2000s, as web design, as, as the web got more and more established, new kinds of practices emerged with the World Wide Web. And separate from the visual design of web pages, this idea about how you structured things so that they could be findable, because the early web was a big mess, if you remember, mm-hmm. how you structured so they could be findable became really important because we didn't have Google yet. And so the field of information architecture was born. And I also, um, I traced that history as well back to the early 1970s or maybe even mid sixties. And then the set of practices that grew and emerged on the web and the, the influence of, uh, Richard Saul Werman, who, uh, is the founder, of the TED conferences and is another architect who was really fundamental in this idea of architectures and information. So all of those ideas rolled up into the book. um, And it's about 12 years of research in archives and technical papers and interviews, and then drawing them up to the present and seeing, you know, why do we need to know this, these things today, this stuff today? So when we say the phrase architectural intelligence, Right. What are we talking about? Well, it's it's a good question. So it's an obvious play on the term artificial intelligence. Right. And uh, and by architectural intelligence, I was looking at systems of AI within architecture. The fact that architecture, I think, is itself a system of intelligence. Um, and ways that we envision buildings and cities around us to become more intelligent. And my book looks at this largely historically from the 1960s through the 1990s, but, um, but puts in place a foundation where we can begin to talk about the impact of artificial intelligence and computation on the world that we live in today. Mm-hmm. 
And what do you think the impact of AI and computational intelligence is or is going to be as far as our, is, our world? Is already. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and in ways that we don't always see. Um, you know, consider the phones that we carry around in our purses and pockets and the fact that they have the computational power of the computers we carried around or that might be on our desktops already. They are very powerful machines. They are machines connected to data sources and to sensors. And um, those data sources are being used in many different ways to deliver us information or not deliver us information or potentially deliver us false information. Mm -hmm. So it's vital for us to think, um, think critically about what happens with data and the way that data comes back at us. And we can scale it up to the size. It's not just happening on screens in front of us, but it's information that we're receiving when we're moving through the world and out in the world. Um, People talk about smart homes and um, the Internet of Things and smart cities. Well, we've been using some of this terminology around smart since the 1970s. And I think it's important to be critical about what that means today. Um, There are ways that, I mean, your, your experience of how you are viewed or parsed through data um, can really impact how you move through a city. You can experience the experience of an African-American man getting stopped 40 or 50 times over the course of a year as he just simply drives to work because he's going through an area that that cops profile. Um, These are, these are issues that result from many of these technologies being out in the world, being computationally, our world becoming computationally aware and us not always being able to surface what some of those biases are. Mm-hmm. Um, so my book looks at a longer history of intelligence and architecture, but one of the questions I raise is what is the contemporary influence? Why, you know, why do we need to know this today? Mm-hmm. So would this be considered, in your mind, a kind of literacy that one person could develop in relation to information and how it's organized or can be organized and understanding then things in relations to how algorithms parse us now as far as our data and uh, what's being collected about us? I really like that way of looking at it of literacies and fluencies you could add, right? Mm -hmm. We used to talk about information literacy or digital media at at the university of Wisconsin. I taught a class called, um, was it? It's basically digital media fluency. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, how do you get people to not just be literate, but fluent and know the impact of, of these technologies on their world, um, on their worlds. And I want to argue that, these old models that we used to use for technological research, um, where you could kind of work on a small, say, set of blocks, and these are called blocks worlds in the 60s in artificial intelligence. And, you know, you might be f- focused on how to use a robotic arm to stack the blocks or how to find the edges of the edges of blocks so that a, a robot, so that a camera would know where the they were and what they were seeing so you could do other things or how you could use a conversational interface to say what you wanted to do with the blocks. You can take these little experiments, but they don't scale up very well to the size of the world. And I think likewise, when you take a data set and learnings from uh, that data set 
or you're training an algorithm, that algorithm might have different different results when you're dealing with the scale of where we all live, which is at the scale of rooms and buildings and cities. And it, I think, raises some concerns around the notion of smart cities, for instance. If we consider where artificial intelligence is currently, do you have any predictions based on your perspective as a historian as to where AI is going? Well, do we have predictions? I don't know if I'd give predictions per se. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I'll point out is that we've been talking about artificial intelligence in in practice and in name since the 1950s, if not earlier. There, by some accounts, you could say we've been talking about intelligence and systems since the first century AD, right? But we coined the term, or the coin, the term artificial intelligence was coined in 1955, mm-hmm. and you know, machine learning was began to be popularized in 1952. But cybernetics is 1948, and these are coming out of World War II, right? And the brain trust of researchers coming out of World War II, so military-industrial complex, where um, this research really takes shape um, in defense-funded projects. And so I think it's important to note that AI is old, but a lot of what we are finally able to do today at scale and quickly in AI is new, and we are on the verge of changing and have been changing some of the paradigms. Mm-hmm. Um, questions of bias and representation are very real, and I don't get into them in enough detail in my book because, again, it's focused on the history, but I think we have choices to make about how we um, are building transparency into how we build data sets and how um, we explicitly try to tackle implicit bias and how to figure out how we will be designing algorithms that are more fair. So maybe we do that and maybe we don't. Uh, Maybe we succeeded it and maybe capital wins out and we build bigger, better, faster, more companies Mm -hmm. that take advantage of data. I don't know. But I think we have some some agency in, in what happens. But I think that one thing I would predict is that our expectations for how things interact with us will be increasingly that they they are intelligent and there will be a higher and higher bar being set so the designers that we train uh for instance in the school of design here are going to go out into the world and be working with ai and machine learning well with ai paradigms in any number of ways in their careers very soon In the book, Architectural Intelligence, you focus on four architects and designers, Christopher Alexander, Nicholas Negroponce, Cedric Price, and Richard Saul Warman. What is it about their work that you find most compelling for this idea of architectural intelligence? I was very interested in how they initially, how they situated their work with regard to information practices and computational practices. Um, their work was structured by them in different kinds of ways. So for Christopher Alexander, he was working with different, uh, different programs and data structures to try and kind of create what came to be an operating system for order. And um, his idea of patterns and pattern languages was really influential for a bunch of things, including um, extreme programming 
working in agile programming methods, object-oriented programming languages in technology, not in architecture, and the wiki format that runs websites like Wikipedia. So he, um, he had a lot of reach. He was also really influential for designers on the World Wide Web. And as I told you earlier, that was <clears throat> kind of where this project started. Um, with Richard Saul Werman, he was very influential for the early information architects in large part due to a book he wrote in 1996 called information architects. And, um, and he talked about a, a lot of digital and physical design practices that were about the organization of information and kind of bringing a notion of convergence to them. He also was really, he's always been a proponent of maps and mapping as a way of coming to understand something. So he tried to bring clarity to information and he didn't do it with computer per se, but the processes were picked up by information architects that he used and were really influential for the early web. Mm-hmm. Cedric Price I turned to because of his idea of buildings that could change, shift, and form and be different things at different points in time. So he worked very closely with a cyberneticist named Gordon Pask and came up with some really unorthodox buildings that weren't really like buildings at all, you know, components that could move, floors that could move, cybernetic processes that would get the buildings to learn from you and you would inform what they would do. And most of these things that he designed were never built, but that was something that he was really interested in and really influential on uh, a generation of architects and how they thought about technology. And then Nicholas Negroponte and his work with his co-founder Leon, Leon Groiser and the MIT Architecture Machine Group was half architects and half engineers. And they worked together to build a tinkerer's lab for computers and computation and digital environments at MIT. And it was also funded by the same Department of Defense entities as funded the AI lab. Mm -hmm. They collaborated very closely with the AI lab and effectively were developing interfaces for artificial intelligence in the 1960s and 70s at MIT. And that's probably the case study that people know of the best, in a sense, because many people are familiar with the MIT Media Lab, which was what the architecture machine group became in late 1984, early 1985. In reading this book, what do you hope your audience gets from it? A number of things. Uh, First of all, I hope that it provides them with an inroad to understanding a crossover of a number of different areas. So how architecture affects technology and technology affects architecture, how those interactions together affect fields of digital design that we started practicing in the 1990s and basically formulate and put in place the experience that many of us have today on the web, in our mobile devices, and in our in our digital world. I wrote the book with three different, four different audiences in mind, architects and architectural historians, historians of technology, interaction designers, and UX practitioners. And, well, I, I probably should also say, you know, not just design. There's, there's a, I, I intend it for both historians or academics and practitioners. So I took care to not write it in an academic tone, mm-hmm. but it's still pretty packed with information. 
one of the things we like to do on New Books and Technology is offer the author an opportunity to say someone tunes in right at this exact moment and you want to give an elevator pitch, a one minute pitch of why they should read your book or should buy your book or go to the library and check it out. <laughs> what would that be? Okay. Uh, Architectural Intelligence provides the secret digital history of architecture and AI and how they poured the foundation for today's contemporary experience. It's a vital resource for architects, designers, uh, technologists, and anyone interested in those crossover of areas to explore the history of um, how AI, cybernetics, and computation came together with architecture to put in place what we do today when we're experiencing the digital world. What's next? Uh, A couple of things. Right now, I am working on a project that I'm very excited um, about with my friends, Laura Forlano and Mike Anity. Laura is a professor at the Institute of Design at Illinois Institute of Technology. And Mike Anony is a professor of journalism and communication at University of Southern California, Annenberg. And we're doing a project called Bauhaus Futures. And the gist of the project, I think the first line of our call for uh, publication is, if the Bauhaus were around today, what would keep it awake at night? And so we've got 20 or so contributions from a number of people, including Joey Ito, the head of the Media Lab, mulling over where the Bauhaus would be focused today if it were around and the kinds of questions that it would want to ask. The Bauhaus, mm-hmm. of course, being the architecture school in Germany that was in existence from 1919 to uh, 1933. So that's an edited volume that we're putting together. And I've just been enjoying sharing the book with people. It just came out a couple of weeks ago, and it's finally in people's hands. And so I'm excited to see what happens when the book's readership now knows about this this history of architecture and AI and design. And I'm wondering the questions that people are going to ask so we can take it forward and do more research in the future. I think the one thing I want to say is that it does take care to draw up to the future what is going on with the digital. Um, And I looked pretty closely at the development of the web. I didn't talk very much here about information architects and that channel or that line of uh, research, but I really wanted to think closely about how the early web came to be and what it had gained from this longer history of architecture and computation. People refer to architecture a lot when they want to talk about something complex that has nothing to do with buildings and cities. (laughs) Ivanka Trump really likes uh, the term architecting. A lot of people get mad if you use it as a verb. I think it's funny. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm, I'm really kind of curious about what it means today when we're talking about architecture. And I think that we can't discount how it engages the digital and how it engages technology. I think that it's absolutely vital. This has been New Books and Technology. Have a great week. 